continuing on our series, Pilgrim's Life, and we jump straight into the book of 2 Peter. Uh, for several weeks, we looked at 1 Peter, and in that first letter, Peter uh, talked about the journey of exiles, how we should persevere through all the difficulties, even as the church faces dangers from the outside. There's discrimination, and you're going to be treated harshly, unfairly, unjustly, but persevere and walk on towards home in God. And now here in the book of 2 Peter, uh, Peter actually warns of a more sinister danger. It's a danger that comes from inside the church. And if we're not careful, it could derail our journey towards God. And so the past two weeks, we've been looking at that. We've been looking at chapter one. And at first glance, when you read it, it sounds like Peter's giving us an abstract set of principles for Christian growth. You know, if you have faith, you add virtue, you add knowledge, and so on. You should pay attention to the scriptures. And that's great, right? But when you get to chapter two, you start to realize, wait a minute, Peter's talking about something more here because he starts to talk about false teachers and false teachings that have penetrated the church and it's endangering the gospel. So you start to realize that, wait, the chapter one is actually Peter's counteroffensive. He's saying, don't be fooled by false teachers and false teachings because the real truth of God always leads to a beautiful, godly life. Don't be fooled by false teachings that sound nice and, you, and it gives you goosebumps, but it never really actually gives you goodness. So that's chapter one. Peter's saying there's a direct link between the truth you believe and the life you're living. If you believe the right truth, you're gonna live the right way. Then in chapter two, he goes the other way. He says, if you believe the wrong truth, you're gonna live the wrong way. That's chapter two. Peter's saying you need to beware of false truths. So let me read to you uh, verses one to nine of chapter two. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of 
judgment. That's the word of the Lord. Now, when you first read that passage, that passage is not the most uplifting one, not the most inspiring of, of all passages, right? Uh, but it's a message we need to hear today. You'll notice in verse 1 it says, there will be false teachers among you with destructive heresies. There always will be. There's always a whole range of worldviews and beliefs that are competing against the claims of the gospel. And it's attempting to penetrate the church and reshape it into something different. It happens in Peter's time and it happened, it's happening in our time as well. So let's look at false teachings today, false truths. We'll see that they are actually consequential and it's not that simple. There are complications behind it. And lastly, what are some correctives, right? Now, it's actually consequential. If you ask the question, why is it so important to get the right truths? Why is that so important? Isn't it important that as long as I do the right things, I might get a few things wrong, what I believe? Isn't that okay already? Or to put it another way, why is it so bad and dangerous to have the wrong truths? Well, here's what Peter says. Peter actually says, Wrong truths are deadly. It's destructive. They're destructive heresies. Now, apparently, what was happening at that time was there were some people inside the church who began to say, well, you know what? Everything's going on as it always has been. It doesn't seem like Jesus is going to come again. There must be no future judgment. And so this is it, guys. You know, make the most of our time. Do whatever seems best. This is it. And that's the complete opposite, opposite of what Jesus is saying. They're, what? They're denying the master, the master Jesus. And so Peter says, these guys are false teachers. They're teaching you wrong things. And these are not just harmless mistakes. These are destructive heresies. Now, wait a minute. Let's back up a bit. Heresy is a big loaded word. What exactly does that mean? Well, someone put it this way. A heresy is a view of ultimate reality which is deeply wrong and therefore bad for you. It's a view of ultimate reality which is wrong and therefore bad. Now, you can get a lot of small things wrong, right? And it probably won't seriously hurt you. It's not that big of a deal. You might, for example, think the weather in Tagaytay is extremely hot, Now, that's wrong, but you're probably not going to seriously hurt anyone for believing that. It's small mistakes, small errors, small consequences. But we talk about heresies, we're talking about ultimate realities. Does God exist? What happens to us after we die? How do I know what is right and what is wrong? What's the meaning of all this, all of life? What's the meaning? See, these are questions about ultimate reality. And if we get them deeply wrong, then we're going to go against the grain of ultimate reality. We're going to go against the grain of the fabric of reality. And it's going to be dangerous for us. It's going to be very bad for us. It's not like getting the weather wrong. That's what the heresy is. Heresies are deeply wrong views of ultimate reality. And therefore, they're destructive. Very destructive. And see, you can't toy around with ultimate realities because if you do, 
then you're toying around with everything about your life. Everything about your life hinges on what you believe about ultimate reality. Your decisions, your values, your priorities, everything. You know, over the years, I've talked with lots of people about what Christianity says about ultimate realities. And on the one hand, I've heard a lot of church people tell me, you know what, Pastor? I'm not really into that theological stuff. I just want the practical things. Tell me about that. And on the other hand, I've heard non-church people tell me, you know what, I'm, I don't really, I'm not interested in that. I'm not, I'm not into religion and all that. Now, in effect, both groups are telling me that my views on ultimate reality, it's not that critical. It's not going to affect me that much. But the Bible says they're both wrong. And here's why. Because every, what I believe about ultimate reality shapes everything that I do, everything about my life. And if I get ultimate reality wrong, then I'm going to get it wrong everywhere. If, I, if I'm off by, a, by an inch here, I'll be off by a mile down the line in my life. Now, you might say, well, how can I be wrong? I don't even think about it. Well, the fact is, every time you do something, you're already assuming something about ultimate reality. So, for example, you might decide, hey, I'm going to use my wealth on myself instead of giving it to others in need. Well, guess what? You're already assuming something about ultimate reality. Maybe you're assuming that, you know, maybe there is no judgment day. Or maybe you're assuming that, hey, God's not going to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, it's going to be okay. See, either way, you're thinking about something about ultimate reality. Now, you might not say it like that, but the fact is you're living like that precisely because that's what you're assuming about ultimate reality, right? Everything, everything about your life, who you decide to marry, whom you spend your time with, how you handle problems, how you parent your children, your values, your priorities, your decisions, everything is determined by how you view reality. And that's why heresies are absolutely destructive. They're destructive. It's not like getting the weather in Tagaytay wrong. Heresies talk about ultimate things and therefore they have ultimate realities, ultimate consequences. And so we have to think about it seriously. We have to take it seriously. And as much as we can, we have to get to the truth as fully and as accurately as possible. You have to fight against any and every false truth that would try to penetrate into our lives. We have to before it hijacks everything. Now, when we talk about that, though, we also have to be aware that there are complications behind that. There are complications. It's, it's not that simple. I mean, how do you protect yourself against the wrong things, against the wrong truths? Now, of course, at the most basic level, you say, okay, I have to understand the truth. I have to study closely and think about it. I have to study the scriptures. Yes, but that's not enough because it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. See, when Peter talks about these false teachers, he's talking about people who came from inside the church, people who have studied the scriptures, who've heard messages about the gospel, who maybe might even have talked to the apostles directly. So these people have heard the truth, 
but they ended up with false teachings. Why? Because the Bible says our minds are connected with our hearts. And so the truth of God can shine its light into our minds, but as long as the heart hates the light and, ref- and loves the darkness, then it's going to keep people's eyes closed, and they're essentially blind. So notice in, in verses 2 and 3, Peter says what? What's happening to these false teachers? Peter could have said, you know what? These people, they had some faulty reasoning. They had some flaw in logic. That's why they have the wrong information. No. What does Peter say? What's the primary uh, error? It's not the wrong information. It's actually the wrong motivation. They're driven by their sensuality. They're driven by their greed. It's not just the mind. It's their hearts. It's their hearts that love the darkness, and it's leading them to these false truths. See, they are not as impartial about the truth as they believe, and neither are we, says the Bible. Again and again, the Bible warns us against the sin in the human heart and its capacity to hijack the human mind. See, sin, Bible says, brings about a spiritual blindness. It distorts our perception of reality so that we are driven towards the darkness. See, for example, the prophet Jeremiah talks about how the heart is deceitful above all else. He's saying the human heart, it's sneaky, it's manipulative, it's making you, it's tricking you into believing all kinds of lies and justifications so that you stay with the kinds of things that you want to believe and stay in the darkness. So think, for example, of an addict, let's say an an alcoholic, right? Now, as a friend, you start to see this destructive pattern and you confront them and you say, hey, this is starting to take destructive roots in your life. You need to stop this. Now, what that person will say well, is, hey, I'm not an alcoholic. I can stop this anytime I want. Or think of the person who spends way, way too much time at work. And then as a friend, you tell him, hey, you know what? I think you're starting to neglect your family. And that person will say, how dare you? Don't you see I'm doing this for my family? Or think of the person who is always miserable, always feeling sorry for themselves, always stuck in self-pity. And as a friend, you tell them, hey, you know what? Maybe you need to stop thinking about yourself all the time. Start thinking of other things, other people. And then that person will say, see, you don't even understand me. The Bible says, these people and us, we're often living in deep denial of reality because sin has hijacked the mind. And the the truth, our, our, our minds will not be fully convinced of the truth as long as the heart hates the truth. As long as the heart is trying to get to something else. It's trying to get to the darkness. See? Do you recognize that? Do you see that in yourself? And by the way, if somehow you're here and you, you know, you're kind of skeptical about Bible and Christianity, can we at least agree that we're not all as impartial about the truth and about the scriptures as we want to believe. None of us are. 
That's what the Bible says. Don't you see that what your heart desires, your mind is always willing to justify so that you can be satisfied, right? That's why, (coughs) excuse me, that's why heresies are so dangerous because it doesn't appear destructive. It actually appears attractive to you. On the surface, it appeals to what you want. It hooks you in with a promise of liberation and satisfaction. You know, in, this, in, the, in the book of Genesis, the serpent told Eve what? He says, you won't surely die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. See, that's the basic components of heresy. It's, it hides the destructiveness and it highlights the attractiveness of uh, of, of what you can get if you believe this lie. <laughs> See, that's how heresies get into us. They don't come knocking on the front doors of your minds. They actually go through the back doors of your hearts. And they get in and they wreak havoc on your lives. So Peter shows us there's multiple ways that can happen to us. And one way that heresies get into us is one is, well, false teachers. There are men and women who teach false things. And some might even quote Bible passages, although they, they're saying something opposite of what the Bible says. You know, you know what's scary about false teachers? Peter is saying these false teachers, they actually came from inside the church. They're members of the church. They're probably baptized. They profess faith in Christ. And these are people who you've sat together in worship. You've shared meals with them. You know them. You know know their families. You know, most likely, in all chances, uh, these people are respectable people. You know, they're sociable. They're charismatic. And they appear good people. So, on the one hand, false teachers, there's actually a very strong relational attractiveness to them. You're relationally attractive. And on the other hand, there's also a very strong psychological attractiveness to them. Because look, these false teachers are saying, there's no future judgment. And so, you know, it's not that bad to live a sexually immoral life. You know, and they'll tell you that if you, know, if you just know the truth, the truth will set you free. You won't live a life of repression anymore. You can do whatever you want. And when you look at them, it doesn't seem like they're suffering any bad consequences. In fact, they seem to be enjoying life more than you do. And so there's this strong psychological attractiveness to them and a strong relational attractiveness. But Peter says, be careful. Be careful of false teachers because they're trying to grab your heart. It's seizing your heart. And if you're not careful, heresies will get in and it will wreck your lives. It will be absolutely destructive. So there's false teachers. Be careful with that, but also be careful with trials. Be careful with trials. See, Peter gives us two examples of people who went through tremendous trials. The first is Noah, and and God told Noah, you know, build an ark because a judgment is coming. I'm going to bring a flood. So for years, Noah was building an ark when there was no rain coming. And so people would have noticed, people would have questioned him, people would have ridiculed him. And it says, Noah, Noah was a herald of righteousness, Peter says, which means 
as peop- people talked to him about the boat, he was talking to them to repent, repent, and, 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 and go to God, right, before the judgment comes. But, but people didn't listen. People ridiculed him. And on the other hand, you have Lot, who lived in Sodom, which was a very wicked city. And it says Lot was greatly distressed by what he saw, by what he heard. So there was a tremendous uh, temptation, a tremendous pressure to become like one of them. They're undergoing these trials. And if you look at these two examples, it looks like different trials, but it's actually the same temptation underneath. It's a temptation that says, why not just give up? Why not just lose your grip on the truth a little bit and let yourself slide down into the darkness? Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't that be so much easier, so much more satisfying? You'll be accepted and loved finally by the people. See, trials make us want to lose our grip on the truth. You've seen this in other people and probably you've felt that in yourself as well. How trials make you want to lose your grip. It could be some illness, some tragic accident. It may be some unanswered question. It may be being rejected by people. It may be you're just completely tired of being good. Trials, just like false teachers, make us want to lose our grip on the truth and just slide back down into the darkness. And therefore, look, if we're not careful, we can go to church. You know, we can go to Bible studies, we're learning all these different things. We're getting all the right information, but as long as our hearts are drifting towards the wrong motivation, then we'll keep slipping from the truth. We'll keep slipping to the darkness. You'll keep letting go of the truth and you'll slide back down. And that's why it's very, very possible for a person who believes the Bible, he's a Bible-believing Christian, he knows the right truths, and yet their lives are full of practical heresy. You say you believe there's a judgment day, but functionally, you live as if there's not. You say you believe the Bible is God's word, is important, and yet, functionally, it's hardly anything in your life. You say you believe God loves you, He's wise, and He cares for you, and yet functionally, you're always worried. You're always debilitated with anxiety and stress. See, your mind knows the truth, but your heart is being pulled away by all kinds of things, all kinds of things, and so you're, you keep sliding back down, keep sliding back down to some other truth. Because as long as our heart has the wrong motivation, We'll never live according to the right information. <laughs> You'll always be out of step with ultimate reality, and you're living out of accord with ultimate reality. And it's absolutely destroying us and the people around us and our relationship with God. So what can we do then? What are some correctives? What we need is to get the real truth back into the center of our lives. Well, what does it take? What do our hearts need? Peter gives a twofold corrective here in verse 9 at the very last. He gives us a positive encouragement and a negative caution. Now, the positive encouragement is Peter says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 
And he draws that conclusion from the two examples of Noah and Lot, who faced tremendous trials, right? Both Noah and Lot lived in the midst of an overwhelming majority of wicked people. They must have felt helpless and isolated many, many times. Tremendous trials. And yet, if God saved them, if God rescued them, then surely He can rescue us. He can pull you through whatever trial you're going through. He will surely keep you safe. He will surely rescue you at the end. Isn't that what the gospel is saying? That if Christ paid the terrible cost of the cross to rescue the ungodly, how much more certain can we be that God would rescue his people from trials? Surely he will. Surely he will. So you look at Jesus and the cross and it's the greatest, ultimate, definitive, positive encouragement that God will rescue us from our trials. So hold on. Hold on to the truth. No matter how hard it gets. That's why we can be completely certain when trials come. You know, when trials are there, you're in the middle of it, it feels like you're in the middle of pitch black darkness, right? And what you need to do is you find the, a bonfire of that positive encouragement. You sit near its light. You warm yourself there in the darkness until the dawn breaks, right? You sit in that, and that will keep you warm and in the light until God's sunlight breaks the darkness. So on the one hand, you have this positive encouragement warming us in the darkness. Then you have this negative caution that's warning us of the darkness. It says, Peter says, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And Peter draws this from three examples. The first example, Peter says, is God judged the angels that sinned. Now, that's a whole new discussion, and I won't go get into that. But Peter's point there is, if God judged these angels, then the judgment that will come on people is certain. It's certain. It's sure. Then the second example that Peter gives is the great flood, which flooded the whole world. And Peter's point there is God's judgment is not just certain, it's for all. It's for all people. Then in the third example, it's the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened to that place was absolutely devastating, terrible. And it's telling us that the judgment of God is not just certain for all, it's utterly terrible, utterly terrible. And in all three examples in the past, all of that points to what's going to happen in the future ultimate judgment of God. It's going to be utterly terrible, utterly terrible. It's for all who are ungodly. It's not immediate, just like those three, but it's coming. It's coming. So look, normally, I would want, <laughs> I would want to speak with a more light, encouraging tone toward the end of my message, but I think it's appropriate at this time to stick with the tone of Peter in this passage. Because the truth is, sometimes the human heart can get so hard 
that nothing gets the message across unless you terrify the heart. I mean, parents, you know this, right? You've seen this happen with your toddlers and teenagers, that no matter how much and treatment and, and encouragement and gentleness and teaching, no matter what you do, nothing seems to get their attention unless you issue a terrible warning before it ruins their lives, right? Do you see that what God is doing here is absolutely the same? He's pleading, he's, he's warning, he, he's urging through these terrible warnings as a father does with a child that's about to destroy their lives. This is the terrible warning, and are we listening? Is it finally getting across into our hearts? So that as our hearts are being pulled down to the darkness, God's shooting these flaming arrows, right? Shooting these flaming arrows by your feet to warn you not to further wander into the darkness, but stay near the light. Isn't that what the cross is all about? That's what it means, right? That our sin, that darkness, needed Jesus to go to the cross. That was the only way. That was what we deserved. It's the cross. It's a terrible price of the cross. That was the judgment. But see, the gospel is this that that judgment falls not on us, but on Him. It falls on Him. And finally, that is what makes false truths so despicable and so repulsive to our hearts. See, when false teachers, false teachings, next slide please, false teachings, false teachings, when you entertain that in your hearts, what you're doing is you're denying the master who bought you. You're denying the master who bought you. And that's ultimately what turns us away from the darkness. That's ultimately what melts our hearts, is that when we see the master bought us at the price, at the terrible price of the cross, to take us away from darkness and its judgment and to bring us into his light. When we see that, when we see the master do that, finally, finally, that's what melts the heart. That's what makes us embrace his light. So if you feel in any way that your heart is slowly inching its way towards the darkness, remember the master. Remember the master who bought you. Even as we celebrate the Lord's table later, remember the master. And let us walk in the light because he has called us out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for loving us despite our stubborn hearts. Lord, you've seen what kind of ugly, filthy things we've done in the dark. You know, Lord. Nobody knows, but you know. You've seen it. You've heard it. But you loved us. And you're refusing to give up on us now. Lord, we thank you for that heart, that loving heart. 
that you have opened up to us. Father, we pray that this encouragement and warning would turn our hearts to you to run towards you, to run away from the dark things. Father, as we celebrate the Lord's communion, bring to our minds and refresh our hearts of the master who bought us at the highest cost to himself. Thank you, Father. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.